Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at ADCES24.org. Welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, conversations with the diabetes care team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm Kirsten Yale, Associate Director for Research at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. Every year, the ADCES Foundation provides funding for research and education initiatives that advance diabetes prevention, treatment, and support. In 2020, today's guest received a grant from the ADCES Foundation to support their research, looking at the role of peer facilitators in diabetes self-management services. Dr. Nancy Allen and Dr. Anna Sanchez-Burkhead are here to share their findings from this ADCES Foundation-supported work and bringing us their expertise and perspectives on how you can identify and bridge gaps in your diabetes care and education services using innovative solutions and new members of the care team, like peer facilitators. Dr. Allen and Dr. Sanchez-Burkhead, thank you for joining us and welcome to the huddle. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. Yes, thank you for having us here today. We're so pleased to have you both. Um, And is it okay if I go ahead and call you Nancy and Anna? Absolutely. Super. Super. Well, I, you know, have the pleasure of knowing you guys and getting to work with you just because of our work on the research committee. Um, And as ADCES is really advancing the research agenda, we're really getting more and more interested in research and especially this work in health disparities. So again, I know you guys, I've respected your work for a long time, but I would love if you could introduce yourselves to our audience and not let our audience get to know you a little bit. Okay. This is Nancy. I am a nurse practitioner for 27 years, specializing in diabetes and clinical care. I'm also a researcher, and um, my program of research has involved diabetes and vulnerable populations. I'm also the co-director of the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Outreach Committee, as well as a program director of the Nursing Workforce Diversity Grant. I am... Uh, women's health nurse practitioner and an associate professor. And my research is in the area of health disparities. I have worked with vulnerable populations, both as a clinician and as a researcher for 25 years, and uh, in the area of both cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. So I know you're both at the University of Utah. Is that how you guys started collaborating or were you collaborating together before then? Yes. So Anna and I have offices on the same floor. And when I came to the University of Utah, I saw that, you know, she was one of my neighbors, went over there to get to meet her. And she talked about starting a chapter for the National Hispanic Healthcare Association. And I immediately said, I'm not Hispanic, but I would love to work with you on that. Yes. <laughs> Nancy and I are, are the best of friends and colleagues. We share an interest and a passion in the areas of, of health disparities. And so we have worked together 
for the past, oh my goodness, I don't know, uh, what is it, maybe eight years or so, we both will work together in the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Outreach Committee at the University of Utah. And we both are well-connected in the Hispanic community here in Utah, and we've conducted several studies with our community members in the area of diabetes. It's so interesting to me because I think about how do these collaborations form and how do they grow? And there is something about being, you know, together in the office, like having these water cooler discussions. I I think that there is something to that, especially as we're all, you know, we all spent the last two years working from home and now we're reintroduced and you realize ah, this is really important. And just, you know, those interactions can expand research so much. But um, well, it's great to hear from you guys about you guys, how you started collaborating, because you really are making a difference in this space. So maybe we could start out with, you know, you have this unique lens from research, right? And research is really where we begin to identify gaps and we can start looking at the future and have our crystal ball and say, where are we going? So I would love to hear from you guys, like what major gaps are there that DCESs in practice maybe aren't addressing right now? You know, I would like to just kind of frame that question in that, you know, diabetes care and education specialists, for the most part, are white and there's only 14% Hispanic, 8% Black, and 6% that are Asian. So we are not reflecting the population as a whole because the group that has the highest diversity is American Indians, uh, Alaska Natives, and they're at 14.5% of those that have diabetes, with Blacks being at 12%, Hispanics being at 11%, almost 12%, and Asian Americans being at 9.5%, with whites only occupying 7.4% of the statistics of those that have diabetes. So that is a major gap, is that our patients don't look like our educators. Yes, Nancy, that is correct. And in our work in the community setting, often we hear from our community members that lack access to culturally sensitive care, but also a lack of providers that look like them or speak like them or have similar cultural backgrounds. So that is uh, an area that uh, we find where there is a gap in knowledge, gaps in experience and gaps in working with vulnerable populations. That's definitely a barrier. And, you know, two things that I think about. One is we can change the diversity in the in the profession, but that takes time, right? And then I guess thinking about that as a barrier, is there a way to break down that barrier and reach the community? I don't know which one we want to start with. You know, I think that's a great question because I'm white and yet I'm working in this diverse space. And one of the ways that I have broken down that barrier is to team up with Anna. And she has taught me so much about the Hispanic community and how to conduct research and to really um, help those individuals live with diabetes. And I think probably the biggest thing was understanding how to develop trust. And Anna will also say that I have 
cultural humility. And I'm going to let her speak more about that. Nancy, as a team, we've learned together about working in this space. And uh, I have appreciated working with you as you have approached the community with that, what we call today cultural humility. We hear a lot about cultural competence and what uh, that is in training, receiving that training and working with people who are different uh, from ourselves. But then there's also that added layer of being humble as we as care professionals approach community members and approach patients that are different than, than we are. I've appreciated your humility and your willingness to learn how do I best approach these communities? How do I best, uh, how do I talk to them? How do I build trust? How do I outreach to these communities of interest to us in this space? And so we have found that working with uh, community health workers and uh, people who are trusted members of the community really opens doors for us. And they also teach us how to work. Each community has their own need. And so we've learned so much from partnering and collaborating with uh, these professionals. If I'm hearing this correctly, and I love that you're bringing up this difference between competency and humility, what I'm hearing is that humility is the bridge to the community that will build trust, open communication, increase outreach. How do you teach humility? There's a lot of training right now um, that one can receive from our own professional organizations that we belong to. And really cultural humility encourages self-reflection, that personal critique and acknowledging one's own biases and one's own privileges. And just being aware of that. And unlike cultural competence, cultural humility does not have an end point. We continue to learn. We continue to be humble and recognize the lapse in our own learning and training. And so, uh, like I said, there's a lot of different training that out there that we can uh, reach out to. I, I, didn't, I, I was looking before we, we met today and there's most specialty areas have workshops and trainings in the area of cultural humility. But what we have found, Nancy and I in particular, is really working with those trusted members of the community and learning from them, being willing to say, we don't, we don't know this and we have not received training in this and we don't understand all of this about working with your community. Can you help us to learn? So being, being humble and approachable in that way. And Kirsten, I'd like to add one thing um, to that. As white people, it's important that we also do our own work. And that involves uh, reading. You know, I have read multiple books and really raised my awareness, my cultural awareness. And to really understand my white privilege and the set of beliefs that I take into any uh, situation. And I think it's really important that we all do our work. Thank you, Nancy. And I was born in Central America and Costa Rica, so I'm very aware of my own culture and values and beliefs. But I also have the opportunity of working with other diverse communities, the Native American population and Pacific Islanders and refugees and African-American. And so I 
also recognize that I too need to be humble as I approach other communities and work with them. So I think this is an area for all of us as health professionals to really examine our space and where we come from and are we willing to learn from others and admit that as health professionals, we don't know it all and we might have trust among our patient population, but as we venture out to other groups and other cultures is that cultural humility that can open doors and open spaces that have not been opened before. And that really makes me think about the healthcare provider, especially a DCES who does a significant amount of education being in a power position. How does power play into that and your impact on trying to communicate and build trust, thinking about power and privilege and humility. You know, when you go into that situation, it's really interesting because I, I will tell you that through my work with the community, I, they've taught me so much. And I understand that there are communities that say things that are very different than, you know, my world perspective. I will give you an example. I've always tried to avoid talking about the diabetes complications in a negative, threatening way, um, such as, you know, improving these things, you know, you don't have to expect those complications. But it was really interesting in some of my earlier research, which was as I sat there and I listened, this was a Hispanic community I was working in, and they said, you know what, we're actually not afraid of death but we're afraid of complications. And we want you to hold our toes to the fire and show us pictures of somebody on dialysis because that gets my attention. And so that, that's just an example of how when I enter into a situation, it's kind of understanding the differences and you know how then do I speak to that particular individual and that's hard because not every individual is representative of their community. So I think that really being flexible, listening to everyone, and just trying to understand and embrace what that person is saying and what motivates them. I would add, as healthcare professionals, we do have that privilege um, that education and opportunity has brought to our world and our space. And then how we approach our patients, uh, community members that we might associate with, that we might educate, understanding, and being willing to learn from them. I don't know how many times I have heard stories from patients, from community members who share stories about going to see providers where the provider did not look up and look at them, did not listen to their concerns and their worries, where they're coming from, did not take the time to understand their self-care practices. And so we, we sometimes approach patients and do this, do that, and, and follow this care plan and we just expect, I think, that they're going to go ahead and follow our plan. And if we don't take the time to understand their cultural beliefs and values, then sometimes we might miss 
a critical piece of information that might provide better care, better understanding uh, on our part on how to approach a healthcare plan that they will be willing to work with that. I love that idea of walking into each interaction with um, an individual you're working with, with that willingness to learn from them. It kind of goes back to what Nancy said earlier, the being flexible, being able to understand and learn from the people that you're working with. You know, I wonder, so if somebody is listening to this podcast for the first time and is thinking and hearing about cultural humility for the first time, we talked a little bit about resources a few minutes ago. Um, where would you guys say for like a small group of DCESs, where would you start? Where could you start with learning cultural humility? How, how can you integrate peer facilitators into a practice? Do you have any, any tips there from your research? So um, Anna and I did publish a manuscript that I think could be a useful reference for diabetes care and education specialists. The title of the manuscript is Hispanic Community Engaged Research, Community Partners as Our Teachers to Improve Diabetes Self-Management. And, you know, within that manuscript, it's kind of similar to what you would do in your own practice. You know, you'd invite community leaders, stakeholders, community health workers, nurses, patients, and researchers to discuss a mutually beneficial partnership. And by doing that, then you learn quite a bit. In this article, we describe how we conducted this research. And we had a community advisory board that had several different types of Hispanic individuals that informed us about, you know, how to promote collaboration and culturally appropriate ways to address the community's needs and interest. We made sure that we held these community advisory board meetings in a community location. And this was the tricky part, was really empowering and preparing everyone to participate. And the way that we did that was we had them help us, help us to create this agenda. And then we created uh, different questions that we could, as researchers, study and explore with them. So we shared the drafts of study questions and you know, we used culturally tailored working strategies. One of these was called World Cafe. Actually, I should probably have Anna explain World Cafe. Sure. We've delivered all our community advisory members and we brought them into a room and we had large posted papers uh, at each table. And then the questions that uh, we asked them, we have them talk in groups and take notes on their posted papers. And, and some drew and some took their thoughts. And then we collected all these large posted and put them along the, the wall and compared notes and had a, just an amazing group discussion about all of the points that everyone at the table had brought together. And Nancy, that was one, one study. And I would really like to share with our audience today, though, what we found with the 2020 ADCF Foundation Grant in working with peer facilitators. And as we talked to the peer facilitators who received this wonderful training, how they taught us about making these materials more culturally relevant and, and how they would implement them in their communities. Didn't you think that was fascinating? 
just to learn from them how we can connect uh, with communities. Absolutely. And so in the study uh, that ADCES funded, it was a part of a, a larger study. And in the larger study, individuals that used Spanish as their main language, which then resulted in everyone being Hispanic, as well as the peer facilitators that lived with diabetes and spoke Spanish and were Hispanic. And they were from Mexico, Panama, they were from all over. And this larger study was an online peer support group or community. And we had these individuals wear continuous glucose monitoring, and then they would go online for this. The peer facilitators engaged with these participants. And uh, basically, the online peer support community included three intervention-related posts each week that were focused on goal-setting through different personal experiments, um, check-ins, and then troubleshooting the goal, and then a final check-in on the goal achievement. And so the peer facilitators, for example, would present some different cooking strategies because somebody on the post said, oh, I hate eating broccoli all the time. <laughs> and then they would look at their uh, continuous glucose monitoring readings and then you know, there would be this adjustment period throughout the week as they all shared their continuous glucose monitoring readings and how a particular recipe, you know, affected their glucose levels. So Anna, I'll let you talk about the peer facilitators and, and some of their reactions. It was so fun and so exciting to work with these international diabetes care and education specialists work with us in our, our study. And as researchers, we provided all of this information and, and this intervention that we really wanted to study. And just working with them as our partners, they then taught us how can we improve the intervention we were planning uh, so it would be better a better fit for each of these communities. And, and like Nancy said, we had people from Mexico and Central America and Panama. And, and so we had this diverse perspective on this uh, education that we were hoping to tailor to fit Hispanic people from all around the world. And they just, they were, they were amazing. And the thing that they taught us, just they were eye-opening. Absolutely. And as part of this, you know, ADCES grant, not only did we interview these peer facilitators, but these peer facilitators went on. They talked about their paraprofessional training through ADCES. And then they also talked about, after doing the intervention, some of the training that they felt they needed more of. So they developed uh, six videos. Uh, one was called Living with Diabetes. And this was from their perspective, as well as the people that they were working with. Tips for being a peer facilitator. Language Matters. And this was how they talked about diabetes with the participants. Understanding diabetes distress, helping individuals to change habits, and type 2 diabetes and myths about insulin, and keys to being a successful peer facilitator. So they really felt that they had some additional content that would benefit that paraprofessional training when working as a peer facilitator with people living with diabetes. And where can people find these videos or these trainings that were made? I'm glad you asked that question. So right now, we are getting ready to publish a manuscript, and we've also submitted a, a conference abstract to 
the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. And these videos at this point in time are being used to develop another larger um, study. So we'll have to work on training, you know, developing some videos for the general population. But at this time, we're using them for research. Fantastic. Well, you know what? You took the words out of my mouth because I was going to ask you guys. It sounds like you have such a great collaboration going on. I was wondering what kind of research you have on the horizon or are you going to continue working together? Oh, definitely. (laughs) Nancy and I will continue working together and we do have uh, several projects in mind. And just to further what we have done so far to expand our research and also our connections with other communities and um, definitely working with peer facilitators and 3D health workers that we have already developed that strong partnership with. Absolutely. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Dr. Michelle Lichman, as well as some of the other authors on the larger study, Dr. Ashley Neg and uh, Dr. Deborah Greenwood, and then um, our statistician, Ellie Icob, and then uh, we also had a wonderful, wonderful research assistant, Bruno Gonzalez, uh, who really connected with the community and facilitated the work on the larger study. But yes, Anna and myself and Dr. Lichman are getting ready to submit uh, an NIH grant stemming from this work. Oh, fantastic. I cannot wait to see where this goes. I mean, you guys have been so fun to work with. You know, on this project and others, you know, especially you guys out in Utah have been so supportive of the specialty. Um, it's been great to see your work and it's been great to see the impact of your work and how it's been able to expand services. Well, I hate to do this. It's always, you know, when we come to the end and we have to wrap up this conversation, I wanted to give you guys just a couple minutes, you know, just to share um, maybe like three practical takeaways, you know, that you could just share with our listeners, how they could include cultural humility into their practice. Thank you for that. I guess for the listeners, I would say many of us hear about cultural competence and we have cultural competence training perhaps yearly in some of the places where we work. But just adding that piece of requesting training in cultural humility where we really do increase our self-awareness and openness to learning from and with each other. Our community members always say nothing about us without us. And Mm -hmm. I love that saying, and I have that in front of me always on my computer, uh, nothing about us without us, really being that inclusive of our patients, our community members, and being willing and open to working with others and understanding other perspectives and value systems. So that's one of the things I would like to stress. Lindsay? Yeah. So I would like to also stress that it's important to look for opportunities to include new collaborators within a community of interest. So if you're interested in working with the Hispanic community, that you get some collaborators for your practice and for your research to help that uh, research along. And then I think that I'm going to let Anna uh, take this, but the importance of including peer facilitators and community health workers in your practice to better meet your patients where they are. Thank you, Nancy. Here in Utah, as I know that has been done in other states, we just... Are, are trying to change policies so that community health workers can 
work with us in our practice and be paid and be recognized as professionals. And and I believe that just passed here in really, I guess, just we want to encourage uh, providers and researchers out there to work more closely with uh, those trusted members of our community that are, um, they go by different names, community health workers, peer facilitators, promotoras de salud, we see those names in research. Um, and so just want to encourage that and develop those relationships. They really are those uh, trusted members of the community that are going to open doors to our research, to uh, our services, to our program that can really make a difference. Not only do they open doors for us to enter these spaces, but also to be well-received and also as educators, as we are open to learning from them how to uh, better improve what we do. And so just a little bit of plan for working with those community health workers and peer facilitators that are members of the community and who really do say that when it comes to research, when it comes to developing programs or, or new interventions, that it really should be uh, nothing without them. Thank you. I love that quote that you said earlier, nothing about us without us. And I really think that that wraps up everything, so, or so much of at least what you guys talked about today, you know, the listening and learning and that it really is a collaboration and a collaboration with the peer facilitators that you you just talked about. Um, and maybe if we, you know, go into every situation thinking about it as a collaboration, aware of the power structures that are there, we really can build those bridges um, and really make a difference as you guys already are. So I truly appreciate you guys being on and having this conversation. It's always enlightening. I always learn something new from you guys. And again, I appreciate having you on and I hope you guys come on again sometime. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We would love to. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Huddle. As Nancy and Anna mentioned, to expand your reach and positively impact more people with diabetes, you may need to look inward and assess where limitations of your program fall and adapt a cultural humility stance to better understand what your clients need and maximize your impact and improve population health. To access the resources mentioned in today's episode, head over to show notes at diabeteseducator.org forward slash podcast. This episode was made possible thanks to donations from ADCES supporters like you. Your donations to the ADCES Foundation go back to the programs and services like Nancy and Anna's. Learn more about other programs supported by the ADCES Foundation and make your own donation at diabeteseducator.org forward slash foundation. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.